your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And Chen Lin publishes uh, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And Roger Wiegand publishes Trader Tracks. Two excellent newsletters. You can also obtain them uh, by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or calling my assistant, Claudio Bossi, in New York at 718-457-1426. Also go to jtaylormedia.com to access this radio show as well as those three newsletters, as well as interviews that I do from time to time with the various CEOs of various companies and also many appearances that I make on CNBC, Fox, and BNN and other places. Um, I do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are American Manganese, Arroway Energy, Clifton Star Resources, Eurasian Minerals, Goldrich Mining Company, and Prodigy Gold. And I also want to thank each and every one of you for uh, listening to this show and making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Today is Tuesday, May 8th, and the markets are taking another good whacking, it seems. Um, there's a lot of weakness and vulnerability uh, in the markets, China. And if you look at the bigger picture, I think uh, you can see there's some good reasons for it. China is weak and slowing down, and, and they're even exporting copper, I'm, re- I'm reading now. They were supposed to be the great importers of copper, but apparently they have too much of it. Europe is a, is a basket case, as we're hearing every day, and getting worse by the day. And the U.S. is not doing all that well either, um, certainly not as well as the happy talkers in the mainstream media would have you believe. Uh, Noriel Rubini, uh, notwithstanding, says that we're heading for a double dip, as has Dr. Gary Schilling, who's been on this show. And I like to uh, really think that you need to pay attention to people that are not highlighted that much in the major media. I think Robert Prechter, for example, rarely on the major media, uh, no doubt what he's saying is not really going to help them sell ad time. So I just uh, quote from the Elliott Wave Financial Forecaster in May. It says, uh, and I quote, the DJIA is nearly alone in reaching a new recovery high on May 1st as the broader U.S. averages failed to confirm the push along with, with every major European stock index. The global bear market is reasserting itself which will result in an across-the-board decline for nearly all financial assets as well as a rise in volatility. Municipal bonds remain particularly vulnerable to a raft of government bankruptcies during the next phase of credit contraction. Gold's downward trend started eight months ago and should continue from near current levels. Silver's persistent price weakness signals an impending contraction in the United States economy. As the next phase of deflation intensifies, the U.S. dollar will rise. And Arch Crawford says, uh, put out a newsletter, uh, his monthly newsletter on Monday, and he suggested the following. 
uh, to accept a sharp decline in equity prices this week between Tuesday and Thursday, thinking that Tuesday could see the bottom, but it could extend into Thursday. On May 20th, he points out, uh, is a Mayan calendar date, which is a solar eclipse and the highest tidal force of the year. Arch says, uh, and I quote, uh, is this, that he is especially concerned about Japan as the eclipse passes directly over the active problem areas. This powerful eclipse will activate the entire northern portion of the uh, Pacific Ring of Fire, the heavy earthquake zones circumscribing uh, the Pacific Rim. We expect greater than normal seismic activity from now to around June 12th and again around the fall equinox in September, end of quote. And Arch also said that he will be recommending a 200% short position against the market on July 19th, which is when we enter the Mars-Uranus crash cycle. And uh, as I noted before, Gary Schilling is suggesting that we do have another 20% down in the housing market. So things are not all that good, even in the United States, which has been the uh, the one bright spot, if you want to call it that, in the global uh, economic picture. Um, from all I read about the Great Depression, it seems to me as though we are in a major way duplicating the same mistakes of the 1930s, only more so. And it is my very, held, very strongly held belief that the uh, mountains of debt that we have created over the last number of decades uh, is hugely deflationary. The politicians and central bankers have tried to use fiscal and monetary stimulus to overcome the natural deflationary pressures from excessive debt. The trouble is, in a fiat currency system with a fractional reserve banking uh, system, debt is the raw material from which money is manufactured. So when you create money, as A. Gary Schilling has said, we don't print money in the United States, but we, the, we, the central bank, pumps money into the banking system. Um, and when we do that, we create both debt and money because debt is the raw material from which money is created in a liability monetary system such as we have, unlike a gold-backed system, which is an asset-backed system. And what we have been saying, what I think we've been seeing over the last 40 years or so, is that debt is growing much, much more rapidly than income. In fact, debt is growing exponentially while income is growing at best in a linear manner. So the more Mr. Bernanke uh, engages in QE, the more debt he creates and the bigger the deflationary problem becomes. Yes, we have rising prices caused by this monetary creation, for the, but those prices are really, I think, raping the middle class at the expense of the banking class because the bankers have access to the money that's pumped into the system. They use it in their hedge funds, and they drive commodity prices up, and it's the commodity prices that hurt the middle classes, rising commodity prices, uh, uh, energy prices, and uh, food prices, etc., are very, very difficult for most people. So it's no longer about investing, I'm afraid, in these markets. It's more about gambling and gaming the system with all the derivatives and the likes of, of FAZ and other things that are out there in the markets. It's really a game, and it's, it's computer-driven to a great extent. So forget about investing. It's To a great extent, it's more about gaming the system. This is the evil of our fiat monetary system, which is uh, really is a fraudulent monetary system based on debt rather than on assets uh, uh, rather than an asset-based money like gold, which has intrinsic value. So it's all con game. As John Duncan noted last week, if we had stayed on the gold standard, uh, a lot of people would not have gotten as rich as fast as they did, but we would have a system, a stable monetary system, where people who worked hard and saved were rewarded instead of being ripped off. But as it is, at least the way I see it, 
is that we are right where we were, as I said, in the 1930s in many ways. Stimulus does not work once your economy reaches a certain point of maximum leverage. You can take it no further. The system must deflate. The credit system uh, must come down, but politicians and central bankers will continue to try to con the public into thinking otherwise. Hence, they're, uh, they're laughing at Ron Paul. So for the most part, the money that is pumped into the banking system, as I say, as in the 1930s, is not being lent out. Uh, uh, borrowers who are credit worthy don't really want to borrow, don't see a need to, and those who would like to borrow and have a need to borrow are not credit worthy. And because the system must deflate, I believe that's what we are in for. The only way we could get hyperinflation, which many of my gold bug friends are concerned about, is if Bernanke did what was done uh, in Zimbabwe and other places uh, where we've had hyperinflation in recent years, and that is literally to print money and hand it out to the masses, not just the rich bankers who own and control the Fed. But the Fed is not doing that. It is pumping money into the system for the benefit of those of its shareholders, essentially, and it is not working. Um, there is one other item, we've talked about it here on this show, that I think is very important to keep an eye on, and that is the dollar index. And Jim Lyles, who was on this show, and I met him again at the Wealth Protection Conference last uh, weekend, in, uh, or two weekends ago, actually a week and a half ago or so in Phoenix, uh, says we need to keep our eye on the dollar index at 70.80. He sees that's sort of a line in the sand. Well, I'm looking today uh, with the increasing problems in Europe, we're seeing the dollar index closer to 80, at least on the futures markets. Uh, it was at about 80. Uh, if the dollar actually falls to its intrinsic value, which, of course, is zero, then I would become... Um, I would also join the hyperinflationists. I would become very worried about that. And it doesn't have to go anywhere near zero. Jim, as Jim points out, if we crack below that technical level of 70, 80, we're in big trouble. But for the time being, as I walk the streets of New York, people who understand the dollar, what it really is, and, and, uh, and, you know, those of us, uh, they basically look at those of us who think we should go back to a gold standard or some sort of a monetary or asset-based money as the lunatic fringe. And they really do still believe in the dollar. They really do still believe in Bernanke and the policymakers and, um, and Keynesian economics, which we've all been brought up with and taught in our Economics 101 classes. Those of us who understand the true value of money, of course, are far and few between. So, um, I, however, I think that day is coming when the masses do catch on to the reality uh, that the emperor is wearing no clothes, that the dollar is a worthless piece of paper, and then I think it will be Katie bar the door. We could really be heading for the exits and the dollar could crash and we could be into real big trouble real fast. Uh, my main guest this week is Paul Van Eden, and when it comes to a discussion of money, I'm very happy to say Paul um, really has done some excellent work along these lines. Uh, he is... Uh, uh, really examined what money is, and I think uh, you'll find his insights to be very helpful. And that's something that even Alan Greenspan couldn't answer to Ron Paul. He said he couldn't define exactly what money was, and therefore it was impossible to really manage it. Well, I believe that this is a most important topic because not knowing how much money exists or what money is or how much of it is, exists uh, is when money is really the thing that we measure value in is like not knowing uh, how long a yardstick is when you measure the distance of something. It, it is most fundamental that we understand what money is and what the money supply is, especially when it comes to measuring the market choice of money, the market's choice of money, that, that is gold. That is what the market has always chosen. But what is gold worth? Well, we're going to talk to Paul 
Ben Eden about that. He's going to he's going to give us his insights and uh, from the perspective of one who has studied and I think has a good handle on what money is. Uh, after I'm finished speaking with Paul Van Eden, I'm going to be talking to Jeff Dice, Ron Paul's chief of staff, and we're going to talk about the uh, committee meeting, the subcommittee meeting that's going on right now in Washington, or it may be over by the time we talk to Jeff, uh, in which his boss, Ron Paul, uh, is chairing, and that is uh, on the discussion of should we mend the Fed or end the Fed. So we'll be talking to Jeff Dice in the second hour. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned, in just a few minutes, we're going to be talking to uh, Brian Marr. I uh, don't know if I mentioned it or not, but we will be talking to Brian Marr. As always in this show, we like to try to apply the um, the practical or the, uh, the theoretical stuff we talk about here with the practical. How can we apply this to our own lives and making money, or at least protecting what we have? Well, we're seeing the gold shares getting whacked again today, and I've been predicting this, and that's why I said some time ago to sell 75% of your gold shares of all your shares actually and build up cash because I believe very strongly uh, that we were heading into a very soft market and, and a very dangerous market. This market could be the equity markets could come down really hard because of all this debt that's out there. And uh, I think we're seeing it happen. I'm looking at the Toronto Gold Share Index. It's down to 284.66 a few minutes ago before we started this show. Uh, and that's down from a high of 450 last year. So that's a really big whack. This is a secular bear market for the gold shares, but the gold mining profits are remaining very strong, and the real price of gold is remaining very high. And as long as that's the case, I look at this as an opportunity, an opportunity to buy mining companies at bargain basement prices. And we're going to be talking, as I said, to Brian Marr of Prodigy Gold in just a minute. Uh, when we come back from the break, and uh, Brian will tell us about his company. It's a very promising company in uh, in uh, Ontario, near Wawa, and they will be producing something like 250,000 ounces of gold. We do have to go to break, but I do want to mention Chen Lin and I met with a CEO of a company in New York this morning. I can't reveal the name because I'm going to be talking about it in my newsletter this weekend, uh, but this is uh, a company that has me literally licking my chops. I think we're looking at something very exciting as these share prices get taken down deeper and deeper. This is a company that will produce about 100,000 ounces of gold this year from Latin America, produce 150,000 next year. It should be generating about 150 million in cash flow. That's double its current market cap and ultimately a gold equivalent production of 600,000 ounces from production in Europe as well as uh, Latin America. These are the kinds of opportunities that are out there. Um, I, I hope that you'll, uh, Check out my newsletter because I think we are getting close to the time when it's going to be very good, uh, a very good time to buy shares. I don't think we're there yet. I think we've got a lot more downside in this equity market, but at some point in time, it's going to be the buying opportunity of a lifetime. Well, we do have to go to break. When we come back, we'll be right back with, uh, we'll be here with Brian Marr of Prodigy Gold. Don't go away. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free. 
cash flow positive and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arrowway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Why invest in Clifton Star Resources? Because they begin the year with excellent drilling results and high goal recovery tests on the Duparquet project. A new experience management team with proven exploration and development achievements is in place. The properties have historically produced over 1.5 million ounces of gold. They are located along the prolific Porcupine Dester Break in mining-friendly Quebec, near Rouen, Noranda. A new resource estimation will be released in May. Clifton Star is only 35 million shares outstanding and is well-funded. Are you looking for a junior gold company that will give you upside exposure to major gold discovery potential, cash flow, and is located in a secure jurisdiction? Goldrich offers you a unique opportunity and controls almost the entire historic Chandelier Mining District, located in the prolific Ambler Schist Belt in Alaska. The company is applying modern-day techniques to explore the district that previously hosted four hard rock gold mines and various placer operations. Visit Goldrich on the web at www.goldrichmining.com or look us up under the ticker symbol GRMC. Prodigy Gold is transitioning from gold explorer to mine developer. We are well-funded. Located in stable eastern Canada, the Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year. Strong project economics with a $939 million NPV. Total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years. Drilling is underway and the scope of the project continues to grow. Please visit our website, www.prodigygold.com. ProdigyGold.com and read more. Prodigy Gold. Today's discovery, tomorrow's future. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Hard Times and the Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me, for the first time, Brian Marr. He's the president and CEO of Prodigy Gold uh, Incorporated, and this is a company developing a gold project near Wawa, Ontario, known as the Mangino Gold Mine, uh, Gold Project, uh, and based on all of the information that I have been able to glean from my research, it looks as though this mining prospect should be a very profitable uh, endeavor. Um, if uh, gold prices are anywhere near where they are now. Uh, Prodigy uh, trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol PDG. Uh, there's approximately 293 million shares outstanding, recently traded at around 62, 64 cents, somewhere in that range, giving it a market cap of around $180 million or so. Welcome, Bill, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Glad to be here, Jay, and thank you for having me on your show today. Really good to have you. Um, I've actually visited that project, uh, the Mangino, or give me the real Italian pronunciation of it. Mangino. Mangino. I was there uh, quite a few years ago after the last bull market in gold, 
and you probably uh, were in grade school or something about that time. But in any event, uh, I wish Jay. Unfortunately, I'm just a little <laughs> bit older, but I understand. Okay. Well, you're not that old. You're a fairly young, a young executive yet, with a lot of years ahead of you. And and this is a gold mining project that looks like it could have some endurance. And uh, so let's get into it and talk about it a little bit. Um, what what is your gold resource? How many ounces of uh, gold tonnage, etc., is there now at the Mangino? Well, the current 43101 compliant gold resource is uh, 3.9 million ounces at an average grade of one gram per ton. Uh, that's pit constrained down to a depth of 300 meters. And then, of course, within that global resource, we have a preliminary economic assessment, or PEA, which shows that at $1,200 gold, considerably below what today's price is, um, we have a, a project that could have an open pit gold mine which would produce 2.7 million ounces over a 12-year mine life. So that's 250,000 ounces a year. Um, very, very profitable, a net present value of nearly a billion dollars. So we have a project with, with a good, strong resource base, but also very robust economics. You recently did a second uh, preliminary economic assessment. Um, what? To, uh, so, so talk to us about the economics. You mentioned net present value. What sort of cost, operating cost, are you looking at? Yeah, the uh, the PEA was released in December. It's available on Prodigy Gold's website, www.prodigygold.com, or on CDAR. Um, it came out, as I mentioned, in December. And what that is, it looked at the project from the perspective of a 20,000 ton per day open pit mining operation, which would, on an annualized basis, produce about 250,000 ounces at cash costs of about $460 per ounce. So that would that definitely place Magino in the upper quartile in terms of cash cost per ounce compared to projects, you know, throughout North America. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're basically, because it's an open pit mining operation, because of the scale at 20,000 tons per day, we can take uh, advantage of some pretty large-scale economics in terms of uh, moving large amounts of dirt. Mm-hmm. So roughly about a gram per ton, you're saying, is, is what the millhead would be? Yeah, well, what's interesting about that, Jay, is as I mentioned, the global resource average grades uh, one gram per ton. But when you actually go in and build a detailed mine plan, uh, like we did in the PEA process, it ends up that we mine at a, at a higher grade, almost 1.2 grams per ton. Mm-hmm. So when you look at a lot of the low-grade gold development projects that are being uh, pushed into production globally, the average grade at Magino actually is you know, above most of those. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly you can make some really good money at even uh, considerably under a gram at, at, uh, per ton in some cases. What sort of capital cost are you looking at here, Brian? Well, Using that 20,000 ton per day figure, we're looking at a standard milling circuit, um, a CIP mill, for those of you who are familiar with the nomenclature, mm-hmm. and it's about $400 million in capital costs over a two-year period. Mm-hmm. Um, so very reasonable capital costs. Uh, we've been already looking into some of the ways we can finance this capital expenditure and minimize any further dilution of the shareholders, uh, and that's really a, a big focus of the company. Uh, right now is is coming up with a plan for financing this as we move the project forward, uh, bearing in mind that, you know, these resource numbers and this PEA I've been talking to you about is all based on drill data that was present through mid-September of last year, and mm-hmm. we've been drilling extensively since then. So we'll be updating our resource estimate uh, in early June, and we believe we're actually going to see a substantial increase in the number of ounces in the project, which may force us to re-examine all of our operational parameters, but for our shareholders, it's just good news. It's continuing to grow in size, and the potential scope of the project is growing as well. 
So potentially you could be producing more than 250,000 ounces a year there, I guess, depending on how it shakes out and how the economics work. Brian, what what um, uh, what is the payback uh, going back to the, the most recent PEA? What is uh, what is the capital recovery time that's required to? Yeah, that's a great question, Jay. Um, right now, the current PEA projects a payback period of only 1.8 years, hmm. uh, exceptionally short. And so as we start looking out at the landscape of possible financing options for the project, when you look at, uh, say, a debt facility for the majority of that, with such a rapid payback period, you're not paying interest on that debt for a very long period of time. That brings your cost of capital down, and that in turn makes the project even more attractive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what, what uh, gold price are you using for your economics on the PEA? We did at $1,200 gold, and so obviously um, when we look at it at, at real-life gold prices, the numbers are, are much larger. Yeah. It, yeah. Interestingly, that's an important part of the planning process, however. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, we, we come at it from conservative gold prices to ensure that the project has strong economics, but when you're actually planning a pit design, a mill layout, waste dump facilities, you run models at higher gold prices to make sure you don't put a waste dump or a mill on top of what might eventually be mineable at higher gold prices. Mm-hmm. Well, so I guess your your open pit, your grades, are those the factors that lead to low operating costs? Yeah, and exactly. You, you low energy costs there? Or? Well, the key there is we're able to move rock at a very low rate, you know, a dollar forty to a dollar seventy per ton, depending on where you are in the pit, how deep you are. Uh, the milling costs in the PEA were in the thirteen dollars per mill ton range, and you know, as we've been augmenting our engineering staff. Uh, Fred Mason, our VP of operations, has now hired a mine general manager, Ricardo Rojas, who's come on board. They've looked at the mill circuit. They think they can get that down to $10 per ton. You look at GNA, and pretty soon when you're fine-tuning it, you realize that you can have an excellent opportunity to come up with a really outstanding project. Mm-hmm. Well, you're, uh, I believe you're, you're intending to take this into production yourselves. You're not looking to build a big project and hand it off to a major? Well, you know, what we're doing, Jay, is we recognize that this is probably one of the better development opportunities in North America, and we are taking every step necessary to build it ourselves. Now, should a, another company come to us and make a proposition, of course we'll listen to it because that could be in the best interest of our shareholders. But I think in order to make sure that all your options are on the table and to preserve the best possible outcome for the investor, you have to be prepared to go all the way into production. But that's why, you know, we have a guy like Fred Mason as our VP of operations. That's why we've hired a mine general manager. Uh, my background includes operating an underground gold mine. We're building a team who have the skill set to actually develop the project for Prodigy and for our shareholders. What, um, how long, when do you expect this mine could be in production? Um, right now, with the current permitting timelines that we have in place, we expect to be in full production probably mid-early 2016, begin construction 2014. Mill will actually start operating in late 2015, but full commercial production would be in 2016. I see that you recently arranged uh, to acquire a large tract of land, I think 73 uh, square kilometers uh, adjacent to the Mangino project from Pele Mountain. What can you tell our listeners about that? Uh, the prospects of, that, of those claims? Well, if you look at the history of exploration and mine development, and it doesn't matter what commodity you care to choose, gold, copper, diamonds, it's those companies who establish district-scale land packages who end up dominating the production in a given area. And that's, that's taking place globally, whether it's the Carlin Trend in Nevada or the 
West Fisher in Chile. Um, it, it's those who are proactive that end up with the largest amount of production from a given area. Now, obviously, with Magino, a project with strong, robust economics, that's a major economic driver in the, dis- in the district. You're building a mill. It has 20,000 tons per day capacity. If adjacent to that, you happen to discover another half million or a million ounces, you've already lowered the cost it will require to put that in production because the mill's in place. So we were very aggressive. We went after the Pele ground. We paid cash for it. So we did it 100% outright. And now we're going to launch an aggressive exploration program. Throughout that tract of land, we've acquired there are numerous past producers, both high-grade underground as well as small-scale, shallow-open pit that haven't seen any real systematic exploration in the last 30 years. And we believe there's an excellent opportunity to augment the resources already defined at Magino by exploring in this adjacent lands we've just acquired. Yeah, it's, uh, it certainly does look like you have a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of long-term potential there. If you believe, as I do, that we're in a bull market of a lifetime for gold mining shares, it's a little tough for a lot of people to believe that now because the share markets have taken, got taken down so, so badly. I'm looking at the Toronto, uh, the Toronto index, um, you know, up from about 450 to two, well, I forget the numbers are way down. We're about 30% or so off the highs or 35% since last September and people are wondering, and yet I look at the gold mining companies, Brian, uh, they're doing extremely well. The real price of gold has risen. The profits for the big guys are doing very well. And you have a growing number of companies, uh, your size, that are starting to enter into production. They're really, it's really an exciting time. This is a bull market for gold mining. And I, I think that um, it seems to me like you have a real, real good chance of doing extremely well there. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners uh, before we conclude our discussion today? Well, Jay, I, I was listening in you know, before I came on the air and, you know, you were pointing out, you know, the, this volatility we see in the marketplace. And I think if someone's looking at Prodigy as a, a potential investment in the gold sector, you know, take a close look at that chart because you'll see that compared to our peers in the exploration and development universe, um, our share price has actually held in quite well. We did a, a near $45 million financing in February for, for 80 cents, and we're basically trading only 10 to 15 cents off of that. So we, we've held in quite well. And I believe that's because people are anticipating this project to continue to grow and scale, the economics to become even more favorable. And I think that's one of the things that really separates our company out uh, from the peer group is that, you know, we are making progress. It's been very rapid, and the market's reflecting that. What would you uh, tell investors the biggest risk they may face if they buy products? I mean, you always have the gold price risk, I guess, uh, you know, our, our next guest, Paul Van Eden, uh, if I understand him, is suggesting we could see lower gold prices yet. But what do you see as the major risk? Because there's always risks in, in mining projects and any CEO that tells their, uh, you know, I know we had one CEO coming on here who said there wasn't any risks. Well, obviously there are risks. So what, what do you think the risks would be for investors that may not be that familiar well, with mining? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question, Jay. I mean, you're looking at a, a company, and all of us, of us junior companies are in the same boat, where we're, we're raising the money to build these projects or to explore for these projects through the equity market, and every time you go back to the market, of course, there's dilution. And even though the, the market cap or the uh, capex requirement for this project is modest at $400 million, it's still a significant number. Um, so i put the largest risk to a shareholder is that dilution, and therefore it, it's the risk of how do you raise that capital. Yeah. And as, as I mentioned earlier, we're very, very focused. Tony Wood, my CFO, and myself are very focused right now on 
locating, identifying, and evaluating sources of non-equity financing for the project. So the shareholder or the interested investor knows that we're not going to hit them with a big whack of dilution down the road to build a mine, that we're going to wisely use alternative sources of financing so that we preserve their equity interest in the property and they can enjoy the upside of the success the project should have. Yeah, well, I, I agree. I think uh, dilution is the number one issue for sure. And, uh, of course, if you can keep your share price up there and, and get people to understand the value, then uh, then that's that's a, a less of a problem. And your website again so people can follow your progress? Sure. It's www.prodigygold.com. Very simple. Uh, I think we've got a lot of great information on there, uh, corporate presentations, press releases, biographies of, of all the key personnel. Uh, it's a great source of information about the company. Excellent. Thank you very much, Brian, for coming on and sharing your story with us. I should tell our listeners for the sake of full disclosure that uh, Prodigy Gold is a recommendation in my newsletter, and uh, and Prodigy Gold is also uh, a sponsor to the show. Thanks again, Brian, and we look forward to talking to you again sometime for an update. Great, Jay, and thanks for your time today. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Paul Van Eden, and you're not going to want to miss what this gentleman has to say about uh, gold and uh, the value of gold, at least as he perceives it. And um, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arrowway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arrowway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arrowway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Why invest in Clifton Star Resources? Because they begin the year with excellent drilling results and high goal recovery tests on the DuParquet project. A new experience management team with proven exploration and development achievements is in place. The properties have historically produced over 1.5 million ounces of gold. They are located along the prolific Porcupine Dester Break in mining-friendly Quebec, near Rouen, Noranda. A new resource estimation will be released in May. Clifton Star is only 35 million shares outstanding and is well-funded. Are you looking for a junior gold company that will give you upside exposure to major gold discovery potential, cash flow, and is located in a secure jurisdiction? Goldrich offers you a unique opportunity and controls almost the entire historic Chandelier Mining District, located in the prolific Ambler Schist Belt in Alaska. The company is applying modern-day techniques to explore the district that previously hosted four hard rock gold mines and various placer operations. Visit Goldrich on the web at www.goldrichmining.com or look us up under the ticker symbol GRMC. Prodigy Gold is transitioning from Gold Explorer to Mine Developer. We are well-funded. Located in stable eastern Canada, the Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year, strong project economics with a $939 million NPV. Total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years. Drilling is underway, and the scope of the project continues to grow. Please visit our website, www.prodigy.com. 
ProdigyGold.com and read more. Prodigy Gold, today's discovery, tomorrow's future. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Paul Van Eden. He was with us a, a few weeks back um, uh, along with another guest, but now we have him alone today, and we want to drill down a little bit into some of the topics that he just touched on that time, primarily uh, the topic of money. What is money? Uh, just a little background for those of you who may not have heard Paul before, and I would remind you that all of our guests, you can read their bios on our uh, at the Voice America website, but uh, Paul Van Eden is there as well. But he is the president of uh, Cranberry Capital uh, Inc. That's a private Canadian holding company. He began his career in the financial and resource sectors as a stockbroker with Rick Rule, who's also been on the show a number of times. Uh, his uh, Global Resource Investment Limited uh, is the company that Rick uh, started. Uh, in 1996, uh, Paul uh, was, uh, that's where he started working for Rick and Ann. Uh, he has been active in financing and mineral exploration companies and analyzing markets ever since. And Paul is well known for his work on the relationship between gold prices, inflation, and currency markets. Uh, and that's really what we want to talk to him today about, to a great extent anyway. His model for determining the fair value of gold was able to predict both the run-up in the gold price to over $1,000 an ounce between 2001 and 2008 and its subsequent decline to around $750. Uh, he also created a measure called the actual money supply uh, to monitor the real, uh, the real rate of inflation. And AMS, uh, for short, is critical to analyze the real inflation-adjusted changes in prices and calculate the real return on investments. And Paul is no longer writing his newsletter, but he is uh, providing unupdated uh, information from time to time on his website. Well, I'm really happy to say that I'll be, uh, I'm scheduled to be on a panel discussion at the New York Hard Asset Conference with Paul and uh, Ian McAvity, Adrian Day, Rick Rule will be leading that discussion, so it's an honor for me to be uh, on the same stage with Paul. I really have a very high uh, high uh, degree of respect for Paul and his work is independent work. What we like to do on this show is have people that come with their own ideas. Enough of this warmed-over stuff that you get on CNBC and Fox and other places. Let's hear what you as an individual have to say, and Paul is a real individual, so it's really a pleasure to have you again with me, Paul. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Oh, Thank you, Jay. I really appreciate it. It's always good to be on your show. It's really good to have you, and especially good to have you because I know you're a guy that's not out there talking to everybody these days. You're sort of uh, used to be on the circuit a lot, and um, we used to uh, we used to hear you talk all the time. One lady from Vancouver recently told me this is sort of funny. I'll just share this with you. She said uh, she doesn't agree with Paul Van Eden a lot, but she sure does love his accent, and uh, so your accent may be charming to some. Paul, I. I, I think it's sort of sort of unique, and I, I sort of like it too. But actually, it's your brains, not your accent. That's why we have you on here. So, uh, your creative thinking. You point out in, in a discussion some years ago that uh, Congressman Paul um, 
had uh, with Alan Greenspan, essentially, Greenspan admitted that even though he was the Federal Reserve Chairman, he couldn't define what the money supply was. But as you know, uh, that is very critical. If uh, if we're supposed to have a sense of how much money you know is in circulation, and what things that we buy and sell are worth. So, um, being the thorough analyst that you are, you you were quite troubled by this lack of clarity from the Chairman of the Federal Reserve, no less. So in in 2008 you came up with what you described as the actual money supply. We just mentioned it in reading your bio, uh, AMS for short. So before we get to your defini- definition of AMS, I'd like to uh, you to discuss some traditional measure of money, some traditional measures of money. We want to ask you about your actual money supply, but you know the ones that we've all been that we've all heard of over the years, starting with M1, M2, M3, and then I guess you got MZM. Could you guess, just give a definition of those things for our listeners that may not be familiar? Sure. I think that's a good point you raised because we talk a lot about inflation and and quantitative easing and and all sorts of things that that are important in the context of what's going on in the world today. But all of these concepts relate to money and the supply of money. And if we cannot define what we mean by the money supply, then all these measures become a little useless. Uh, it, it, it doesn't make sense to me to be fearful of an increase in the money supply when we don't know what the money supply is. <laughs> Good point. So, so let's let's look at <clears throat> a couple of these measures that have been used over time. You mentioned the M series, and, yeah. and the M series are the most widely used and most widely known measures of money supply, mm-hmm. and they were created uh, specifically for you know, by economists. Uh, uh, to enable them to try and get a handle on what the money supply was doing. And the, the very basic, the very first one in the series, which is M1, is really just notes and coins in circulation and what are called demand deposits. De- and demand deposits are deposits that you can walk into a bank and demand all the money that's in in that deposit account. So things like a checking account, you can write a check and draw out all the money in your checking account on demand. And and that's very often used as a as a kind of catch-all measure of the money supply. But of course, when we're concerned about monetary inflation, then this measure of the money supply really doesn't do the trick because it's too narrow. Notes and coins in circulation are money. Yes, that's true. And checking accounts, you know, are what we would consider part of our our money, our wealth. If you if you walk down the street and you say to somebody on the street, you know, hey, do you think that the money in your checking account is money? And the obvious answer is yes. I use it as money. I can write a check mm-hmm. against it. Of course, it's yeah. money. And you can take it out of the bank that day and get coins and notes. And I can for take it. it out the bank and I can get coins and, and all that kind of good stuff. Mm-hmm. So obviously that's money. But the problem with M1 is it doesn't count other forms of money. Mm-hmm. And primarily, it doesn't count your savings account or your term deposit account. Mm-hmm. So the real problem is if, if you go to the bank and you put you know, $10,000 into a checking account and you put another $10,000 into a savings account, M1 doesn't count the $10,000 you put in the savings account. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So according to M1, all the money that we have in savings accounts just disappeared. Mm-hmm. Well, that's unrealistic. 
Because if you ask the same guy on the street, if he also thought that the money he had in a savings account was money, he'd probably say yes. Mm -hmm. I don't know of anybody who puts money in a savings account and then assumes that the money just evaporated. Right. So that's the problem with M1. It doesn't count term deposits and things like savings accounts. So they created another measure of money supply called M2. And M2 does count savings account and term deposits, but only up to $100,000 in value. And the reason the $100,000 in value was chosen because that's the amount which the FDIC used to insure uh, bank accounts. Mm -hmm. So the assumption was if it wasn't FDIC insured, well, then it could go away theoretically if the Mm -hmm. bank goes bust, so we shouldn't count it as money supply. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's a really big problem because if you ask the same guy on the street, if he thought that the million dollars he had in his savings account was money, he'd probably say yes. <laughs> you know, you don't put a million dollars in the bank and then assume that you only have $100,000 left. Right. So there's a real problem with M2 because it only counts money up to $100,000 mm-hmm. in, in bank deposit accounts. But M2 creates another problem. It also counts money market mutual funds with a value up to $100,000. And I'll get back to money market mutual funds in a minute. But the third measure that they created was M3. Now, M3 counts all these bank deposit accounts, and that's great. That's what we need. We need to capture all these bank deposit accounts. The problem with both M2 and M3 is they also count money market mutual funds as part of the money supply. Now, that's a really big problem because money market mutual funds are not part of the money supply. And it's very simple to see why not. If I go to my my broker or my bank or whatever and I buy $10,000 worth of a money market mutual fund, then the money market mutual fund takes my $10,000, gives me a certificate, and then they take the $10,000 and they give it to a U.S. corporation mm-hmm. in return for commercial paper mm-hmm. from the corporation. Mm-hmm. The corporation takes the $10,000 and puts it into their bank account. Mm-hmm. And in their bank account, it's counted as a deposit, whether it's an <laughs> M2 or M3 or M1, but it's there. Yeah. In the bank account, it's counted as money. Mm-hmm. If I now also count my mutual fund certificate as money, then I'm double counting that $10,000. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you cannot include money market mutual funds in the money supply because all of the money market mutual funds, all of the money related to that money market mutual fund is already counted in the bank deposit account. So you're double counting money. Mm-hmm. So M1 is too narrow. Mm-hmm. M2 is too narrow, but also double counts. Mm-hmm. M3 is broad enough but double counts to such an extent that it's completely useless. Mm -hmm. So we need to be more specific in what really is money. So I coined this phrase, the actual money supply, Mm -hmm. to to try and calculate what is actually money. And it's very simple. What I consider money are notes and coins in circulation. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Mm -hmm. And all of the deposit accounts at commercial banks in the United States. Mm-hmm. All of them, the small ones, the big ones, the demand deposit accounts, the savings accounts, the term accounts, all of those I count as part of the money supply because all of the people who own those accounts act as if that is really money. Mm-hmm. They believe that their money in the bank is there. Mm-hmm. 
So we count that. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing else that's money. There's mm-hmm. nothing less that's money. So the, the money supply that I calculate is just the sum of notes and coins in circulation and all deposit and the total sum of all the deposit accounts at U, commercial U.S. banks. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, that data is released weekly. So on my website, I have the actual money supply. It, it's in a chart form, but it's mm-hmm. updated every week. Mm-hmm. What is that website, Paul, if you could just pass that on to our listeners right now? It's paulvaneden.com. And if okay. you don't know how to spell Paul Van Eden, um, I've captured a lot of the phonetic variations thereof, so you should be able to get to the website. Okay. Well, it's Paul, and it's V-A-N-E-E-D-E-N. Paul Van Eden. Right. Dot com. Dot com. Excellent. Well, it's certainly something that I'm going to want to... Uh, take advantage of. I should have uh, been aware of that, but certainly um, something I'll pass on to my to my subscribers from time to time as well, Paul. Um, okay, so you created MZM, or, or you created uh, the actual money supply. Um, uh, so that's your definition of it. Now you talk about the actual inflation rate. Is that the same thing? Are we talking about? Is do you do you define inflation as the supply of money as the Austrian school does? Yes. So, the, so once we know what the actual money supply is, and we actually and we know this on a week by week basis how it changes, then we can calculate what the actual monetary inflation rate is. Now, here we have to be very clear once again. When I talk about monetary inflation, as I do on my website, and as we, you and I, I'm sure, are going to talk about it in the show, mm-hmm. we're not talking about the change in prices of goods and services. No. That's price inflation. Right. What we're concerned with here is monetary inflation, which is merely the rate at which the money, the money supply increases or decreases over a given period of time. The way that I calculated on my website is I, I group four weeks together, average them, and compare them to the same four weeks a year ago. Mm-hmm. So it's a year-over-year mm-hmm. change in the money supply on a four-week average basis. Mm -hmm. And if we know what the actual monetary inflation rate is, then we can make comparisons to what was the monetary inflation rate like, say, for example, in the 1970s or the 1980s or in the last 10 years. And it becomes useful now because when we start to talk about concepts like quantitative easing, which really... What quantitative easing is, is the Federal Reserve increasing the money supply. We can now calculate very accurately what is the effect of quantitative easing on the money supply. So how much monetary inflation was created by QE1 or QE2? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, well, tell us a little bit about what uh, AMS is now and how does it compare with, with past periods of time? Well... The, the, the actual money supply is sitting at just under $10 trillion, mm-hmm. but that's a number, okay? And, and the number in and of itself doesn't tell you very much. What's important is the inflation rate of, of the, the actual money supply. Mm-hmm. And right now we're sitting on an actual inflation rate of approximately 8%. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I say approximately 8% because obviously it's, it's fairly volatile and it changes all the time. So would that be the year-over-year rate, Paul, from this time last uh, from last year? Correct. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Correct. So it's 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 if we take the past four weeks and compare them to the past four weeks of, last of year. a year ago, mm-hmm. then we're mm-hmm. sitting on approximately uh, approximately eight percent. In fact, as of April twelfth, it was actually sitting at seven point three percent. So it's mm-hmm. come down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty rapid growth in, in money supply, I would say. I have to ask you about velocity of money, the the turning over of money. Does that come into play into your into your thinking at all? I guess it no. would because no. Um, actually, what I do on the website is I calculate the velocity of money as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a chart on the website with the velocity of money, and and uh, an interesting thing that the velocity of money has been plummeting since about 1995. Really, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I don't use the velocity of money. In my own models, very much. I prefer mm-hmm. to look more at the money supply itself and the rate of increase in the money supply itself. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned an interesting thing, Jay. Mm-hmm. You know, I said that the current rate of monetary inflation is around seven point three percent, and you mm-hmm. said that's very high. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely agree with you. That is very high. Mm-hmm. But it high is- relative to what? Mm-hmm. Because in the 1970s, monetary inflation, you know, was actually uh, about 8% on average, mm. mm-hmm. a little over 8% on average. There was a spike. Right. Um, but there were a couple of spikes and a couple of troughs. But it was running, you know, between, I would say, 8 to 10%. Mm-hmm. And, of well, course, that's, that's, we, we characterize the 70s as a period of very high inflation. Exactly, exactly. And so w- when we're looking at the AMS uh, definition, we're looking at 7.3, or they're very close to the 1970s. And yet, well, uh, you know, the way they count, of course, we're, we, we don't want to confuse price inflation with monetary inflation, as you pointed out. But, of course, monetary inflation eventually does it not make its way into price inflation. That's the theory, at least. That's, that's the theory. Okay, let's the hear theory. it. What do you think? But let, let's be very clear again. I'm talking about the 1970s having monetary inflation rates mm-hmm. of around 8 to 10%. Right, because so we had price, price inflation that, were, that exceeded that. But with that level of monetary inflation, there was, there was much higher price inflation than what we're seeing right now. Mm-hmm. And the, some of the theories, well... If we're sitting at a, at a monetary inflation rate that's comparable to the 1970s, are we not going to start to see price inflation comparable to the 1970s? Yeah, that is a, that is a legitimate fear. Mm-hmm. But there's another, there's another thing to consider. What happened to interest rates after the 1970s? Yeah, well, they, well, they, they, they skyrocketed up till 1980, uh, 1982 about, right? Right, so we got... Following the 1970s, we got the highest interest rates that we've had probably in the last 100 years. Well, I know during that time, Paul, uh, I know there were people that said we had the highest real rates of inflation after Volcker came in uh, since the Civil War. Uh, that is uh, above, the, and of course, there they're measuring price inflation away from the uh, from the interest rates. But we had a monetary policy then, at least, that was a tightening policy. I guess that uh, certainly seems almost uh, not doable now, given the enormous amount of debt that we have in the economy. Now, would you agree with that? Yes, Politically and no. Not doable. I think I think it's not expected. Yeah. Is it not doable? I don't know. I think it's going to happen. Uh huh. 
because if you think about what what causes interest rates to go up, well, high rates of monetary inflation, because at some point people demand a higher rate of return on their investments in order to compensate for the rate of monetary inflation. And mm-hmm. investments here, I'm talking specifically about bonds, mm-hmm. the government bonds, as an example. So yeah. then the argument goes, well, we can't have higher interest rates because that's going to kill the economy. Mm-hmm. Maybe it will, but is there a choice? Mm-hmm. Because what is a bond? What is an interest rate? The interest rate of a bond is related to the price of the bond. If the price of the bond goes up, the interest rate falls. If the mm-hmm. price goes down, the interest rate rises. Mm-hmm. So we have the highest bond prices probably in the history of the U.S. in the last 100 years. Mm-hmm. We have the lowest interest rates in the U.S. And we're saying exactly the same thing because interest rates and bond prices are inversely correlated. Mm-hmm. But we also have very high U.S. debt particularly government debt. Mm -hmm. But what happens when you have an abundance of supply of something? It puts price pressure on that something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have an abundance of supply of U.S. government debt. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, what you expect is that the large supply of government debt will cause the price of government debt to fall. And the yields to rise. And the yields to rise. Now, if it were only up to an authority, if it was only up to the Treasury or up to the Federal Reserve to determine interest rates, then one could make the argument that the U.S. economy is weak and they wouldn't allow this to happen. Mm -hmm. But the reality is it's not only up to the Federal Reserve Mm -hmm. to determine this. It is up to the market to a much larger extent. Mm -hmm. To determine what these yields are right now right now the market is prepared to accept very low yields on US government bonds because relative to other financial securities they perceive US bonds to be more secure yes they perceive US bonds to be more secure than Greek bonds or Spanish bonds or Italian bonds or we can name a whole bunch of bonds. Yeah. But that's a perception, and it's a relative perception. When the financial f- fear that is pervasive in the, in the world economy subsides, and people start thinking about absolute returns as opposed to relative returns and relative safety, they're going to look at things like monetary inflation, And they're going to look at things like the yield on government bonds, Mm -hmm. and they're going to request higher rates, meaning they're going to sell bonds that are overpriced and wait for rates to rise. And it won't be up to the Fed to to control those interest rates because they will not be able to. Yeah. Then interest rates will rise. Mm. But it it certainly is, Paul, the case, and certainly my belief, that markets are more powerful than... uh, uh, than the Fed chief, the, Fed, the Treasury, or, or any government even, and that ultimately uh, the markets will prevail, which is one of the reasons I'm not automatically buying into the hyperinflation views of many of, uh, of our colleagues. Uh, we do have to go to a commercial break now, and when we come back, I want to pick up on this 
On this subject of debt and interest rates, uh, and ultimately we want to get to your view of what the uh, the uh, sort of a realistic price or uh, of gold would be right now, uh, using your uh, ideas on uh, and the actual money supply. So, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Paul Van Eden after we go to commercial break at the top of the hour. We'll be right back. Don't go away. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arrowway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arrowway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arrowway is listed on the ODCQX under the symbol ARW. WJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Why invest in Clifton Star Resources? Because they begin the year with excellent drilling results and high goal recovery tests on the DuParquet project. A new experience management team with proven exploration and development achievements is in place. The properties have historically produced over 1.5 million ounces of gold. They are located along the prolific Porcupine Dester Break in mining-friendly Quebec, near Rouen, Noranda. A new resource estimation will be released in May. Clifton Star is only 35 million shares outstanding and is well-funded. Prodigy Gold is transitioning from gold explorer to mine developer. We are well-funded. Located in stable eastern Canada, the Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year. Strong project economics with a $939 million MPV. Total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years. Drilling is underway and the scope of the project continues to grow. Please visit our website, www.prodigygold.com. ProdigyGold.com and read more. Prodigy Gold. Today's discovery, tomorrow's future. Are you looking for a junior gold company that will give you upside exposure to major gold discovery potential, cash flow, and is located in a secure jurisdiction? Goldrich offers you a unique opportunity and controls almost the entire historic Chandelar Mining District, located in the prolific Ambler Schist Belt in Alaska. The company is applying modern-day techniques to explore the district that previously hosted four hard rock gold mines and various placer operations. Visit Goldrich on the web at www.goldrichmining.com or look us up under the ticker symbol GRMC. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment.